0: Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson, and on behalf of Dr. Ashley Best and the rest of the Bench Talk team, we want to thank you for tuning in today. This show is about bringing science to the people. We want the show to be a clearinghouse for the research that is important to all of us. So we've spent this week scouring the library stacks for research publications that are just too interesting to be ignored. Let's get started.
1: You're listening to a special edition of Bench Talk. It's our Halloween-themed episode, and we're also continuing the Forward Radio Pledge Drive.
0: So here's what you need to do. Go to forwardradio.org, go to that website, and find our Indiegogo pledge page. We need to raise $10,000 to stay on the air another year, and you can help us reach that goal. Give what you can. Every little bit helps us achieve that goal. There's some pretty cool thank you gifts available for your pledge, so just check that out on the Indiegogo website. Consider becoming a sustaining donor at $5 or $10 or more per month. Choose the level that's right for you, of course, on the PayPal link at the bottom of the page at forwardradio.org, and your account could be automatically charged each month. It's really easy and painless, and you'd really be supporting something important. As you know, we don't play commercials on this channel, so we really need your support to keep us going. We don't waste money, either. We're a lean, mean, efficient, fighting machine. So go ahead to forwardradio.org right now and pledge. I'll wait. Go ahead, do it. I'm waiting. Waiting? Anyway, I know you'll do it. Thank you.
2: upon us. Throughout neighborhoods, one can see pumpkins, witches, zombies, and more decorating houses as one passes through. On Halloween night, little ghosts and ghouls will be traveling in groups, going from house to house in hope of filling their sacks with candy, shouting trick-or-treat to get it. To quote Winifred Sanderson in the movie Hocus Pocus, sisters, all Hallow's Eve has become a night of frolic, where children wear costumes and run amuck." But as Winifred implies, Halloween, or All Hallows' Eve, was not always a night of frolic and candy collection. In fact, Halloween has a bit of an astronomy connection to it. At its roots, astronomy was tied to timekeeping. Things changed on the Earth, but the sky was considered more permanent. Careful observations showed that patterns seen among the stars were generally synced to what was happening here on Earth. Certain patterns of stars would be visible in the early evenings during certain times of the year. The moon and the sun were also seen to undergo repeatable and predictable patterns, and those who studied the sky, the early astronomers, noted those patterns. The sun's periodic rise and set locations along the horizon play a role as to the date of Halloween. If one watches the location of sunrise over the course of a year, for example, one would find that the sun does not always rise in the east. Its rise point swings from a point north of east to a point south of east and back again over the course of a year. The northern and southern extremes are called the solstices, and mark the first day of summer and winter here in the northern hemisphere. The summer solstice is on or near June 21st, while the winter solstice is on or near December 22nd. Halfway between these extremes, the sun rises due east on two separate dates, the equinoxes. There is a spring equinox, marking the midpoint of the sun's apparent rise more and more toward the north each morning after the winter solstice. Six months later, there is the autumnal equinox, marking the midpoint of the sun's apparent rising more and more to the south each morning after the summer solstice. The spring equinox is on or near March 21st, and the autumnal equinox is on or near September 22nd. To further refine this calendar, midpoints between the solstices and equinoxes were also marked. These are known as the cross quarter days. These fall around February 2nd, May 1st, August 1st, and October 31st. These cross-quarter days were the traditional start dates for the seasons to ancient people like the Celts of Britain. As to some of the traditions celebrated on Halloween, some of these are astronomy-related as well. The ancient Celts, going back to about the 5th century BCE, divided the year into light and dark, marking the observation that during part of the year, there are days with more light than darkness, while in the other part of the year, there are days of more darkness than light. The midpoint of this was around October 31st. They marked this transition point with a festival called Sao In, spelled S-A-M-H-A-I-N, which served as their New Year's Eve. The ancient Celts considered this date, and its equivalent in the spring, as a seasonal seam between the border between our world and that of the supernatural world. At this time, the spirits of the dead could pass into our world, perhaps causing mischief. The people would disguise themselves or leave out small cakes or apples or other treats to ward off the spirits. Some would even travel door to door to gather treats to appease those spirits that no longer had living relatives to provide for them. This was a time the people feared. Druids, the mystics of the Celts, would build huge bonfires while the people themselves would extinguish their own hearth fires in the hopes of drawing the spirits away from homes. As the bonfires died down, embers were carried in hollowed out turnips which could act as a lantern and be used to relight the hearth fires back home. In the 9th century AD, with the spread of Christianity, Many festivals celebrated by pagan people were absorbed and redefined to make the transition of these pagan people to Christianity more palatable. In the case of In, the Catholic Church created the Feast Day of All Saints, celebrated on November 1st. That would make October 31st the Eve of All Saints Day, or All Hallows' Eve, eventually corrupted to Halloween. To some degree, the Catholic Church played a role in the conversion of Halloween from a celebratory time to one of dread, characterizing All Hallows' Eve as a time when evil spirits or demons, evil forces associated with the devil, were afoot. This would distinguish All Hallows' Eve with the more pious celebration of saints the next day. In the 19th century, many Irish and Scottish immigrants came to America, and they brought with them many of their own traditions. Some of these traditions can be seen in the folklore attributed to Halloween. This includes witches flying on broomsticks through the night, for example, and turnip lanterns. The use of turnips was converted to that of pumpkins, which were more plentiful here in America. Pumpkins were also easier to carve. Over time, pumpkin carving has become quite the elaborate activity for modern Halloween. Today, it seems that Halloween has gone back to its roots. Rather than being a time of dread when devilish forces are afoot, America's version of Halloween has again become a time of fun and frolic. Dressing up in costumes is often humorous and scary. Throwing themed parties and collecting candy, in a sense, return Halloween to its roots. And it should. There are more than a few of our modern holidays that have some connection to astronomy in its guise as timekeeping. In future editions, it may be possible to spend a bit of time making those connections here in this program.
1: Halloween, we think of zombies, ghosts, and ghouls, but what about the Dementor Wasp? Ampulex Dementor, named after the mythical Harry Potter creatures? The Dementor Wasp isn't scary because of its name, but what of what it does to its prey? Dementors in Harry Potter consume a person's soul, leaving a functional body without emotions or personality. Dementor Wasps prey on cockroaches. You might have guessed where I'm going with this, but just in case, let me remind you that as far as science knows, there are no soul-sucking creatures that we know of. What the Dementor wasp does is inject a toxin into the cockroach's abdomen. This venom blocks the receptors for the neurotransmitter octopamine. Neurotransmitters are signal molecules for neurons. There are many different types of neurotransmitters that all have their own functions. You may have heard of serotonin, which is a contributor to our feelings of well-being and happiness. Epinephrine, also known as adrenaline, is responsible for your fight-or-flight response, or dopamine, which plays a large role in reward-motivated behavior. Many human diseases or conditions are associated with altered levels of neurotransmitters, either through natural causes or drug use. Cocaine increases the release of dopamine, greatly increasing the addictiveness of the drug. Excess dopamine production is one of the factors in the development of schizophrenia, where a decrease in dopamine has been implicated as the cause of Parkinson's disease. Antidepressants target an increase in serotonin. But let's get back to octopamine, first identified in the salary glands of an octopus. In invertebrates, this functions similar to how norepinephrine does in mammals by regulating aggression. It also modulates muscle activity. In insects, this is known as locust jump. This makes the leg muscles contract more effectively. The Dementor wasp will sting the cockroach, releasing the toxin which blocks the receptors of octopamine. This prevents octopamine from functioning. This actually doesn't prevent the cockroach from moving, it just prevents the cockroach from controlling its movements. The cockroach then uncontrollably runs into the wasp's nest, allowing for easy capture and consumption. Now can you imagine how frightening it may be if they were human-sized wasps? The name for this new species was chosen by museum visitors in Germany. But don't be distraught. You may one day also be able to partake in naming of a species of wasp. Some 30,000 species have been identified so far. There must be some more out there just waiting to be identified by you.
0: Hey Ashley, you're a microbiologist. You probably already know about this event that happened in Kazakhstan back in 2015. Kazakhstan is this very large country south of Russia, east of the Ukraine, west of Mongolia. Back in 2015, there was a BBC camera crew in Kazakhstan. They were filming the second part of the Planet Earth series. And they were specifically trying to feature the mating of this strange antelope that's native to Kazakhstan called the Saiga antelope. Saiga is spelled S-A-I-G-A. And so they were out filming these Saiga antelope, and all of a sudden, they started dying. Over a period of three weeks, something like 200,000 different Saiga antelope perished. A whole herd of antelope would look normal one day. The next day, they'd start looking sickly and then just fall over dead within hours. The whole herd. Thousands of Saiga antelope dead every day over an area about the size of Florida. 200,000 Saiga dead in just a matter of three weeks. Now, the saiga antelope was already an endangered species It's because it had been widely poached during the fall of the Soviet Union. It was killed for the horns and for the meat. And then on top of that, this happened. At the time, there was all sorts of speculation about what killed these antelopes. Was it pollution? Was it radiation? People even talked about aliens. So this group of researchers organized a project to try to determine what exactly killed these antelope. This is the first example of a group of researchers taking this new approach called One Medicine, One Science. This one medicine, one science philosophy was actually developed at my alma mater, University of Minnesota, by a group of veterinarians a few years ago. Basically, the one medicine, one science approach calls for a more multidisciplinary collaboration between basic scientists, applied scientists, physicians, veterinarians, even policy experts. It tries to get away from the linear, piecemeal approach that individual scientists usually take. When you read descriptions of one medicine, one science, you see a lot of terms like synergy, real understanding, and collaboration. When I was doing my background reading of the one medicine, one science approach, I kept thinking, well, it's about time we took an approach like this. So these researchers autopsied the saiga antelope to try to figure out what happened. So they examined the food that the animals would have been eating, the soil, the insects, the weather, just everything they could. Now, there were epidemiologists on this research team and they quickly discounted the idea that these animals died due to a simple epidemic, that there was some bacteria or virus that swept through the herd and killed them. They just didn't think it had the signs of that. For instance, it killed the animals too quickly, and it killed 100% of the animals, which apparently is just not something that's been observed in past epidemics. Now this is not to say that bacteria was not involved in the death of these animals because it was. They identified a species of Pasteurella. This Pasteurella bacteria normally grow in the long nostrils of the saiga antelope, but that what happened in this situation is the Pasteurella bacteria started producing toxins which induced internal bleeding in the animal and that caused the animal to die by suffocating on their own bodily fluids This is officially called hemorrhagic septicemia. So they determined that this Pasteurella bacteria has always lived in the nostrils of these antelope, but something triggered the bacteria in 2015 to start producing these toxic chemicals. And what was it that triggered this in the Pasteurella? They think it was the weather. The weather was very unusual during this period. The die-off was preceded by a 10-day period of very high heat and very high humidity. Humidity levels, for instance, were the highest ever on record. To confirm this hypothesis, they looked at the weather records around two other smaller die-offs that had occurred in the same species of antelope in the past. One had been in 1981 and one had been in 1988. And sure enough, both of those smaller die-offs had been preceded by the same kind of weather, high temperatures and high humidity. This group looked through the scientific literature and found a report about lab rats becoming more infected with Pastorella bacteria when the humidity was high. So that provided some further corroboration for this conclusion. Now the good news, other than that they did figure out what probably killed the Saiga antelope, high temperature and high humidity, the good news is that the species is not extinct. It turned out that some of these antelopes had migrated to the high mountains during this die-off period in 2015, and the high mountains didn't experience the high temperatures and high humidity that did in the animals in the lowlands. So there are a large number of antelopes still alive. A treaty has been signed to protect the Saiga antelope, with five different countries co-signing. So hopefully these animals can stage a comeback the implication of this story is that we really don't know what happens when our climate changes. We usually associate climate change with things like droughts and fires and melting ice caps and floods and tornadoes and hurricanes. But this case points out that even the microorganisms that live in animals might also be interrupted when you have drastic climate change. It's sort of like this pastorella bacteria that naturally has lived in the nostrils of these antelopes for perhaps centuries was just like a ticking time bomb. And when the climate changed in that area, it became more humid and higher temperatures, that just induced this physiological change in the bacteria, which appeared to have a fatal effect on the host, the antelope itself. It makes you wonder whether there's any other animals out there that have a natural microbiome that could turn on the host if the climate happens to change in a certain way. This might be what's going on with the white-nose syndrome that we see in bats in this part of the country. And then to take it a step further, you wonder, could this happen to us? I found a short discussion of this question, and the general thought was, probably not. Since humans are already adapted to so many different climates, we live in deserts, mountains, very cold climates, very hot climates. The weather changes from month to month that our microbiome is probably pretty used to these changes in the environment. But natural species or native species of animals that have evolved to live in only one certain area might not be so well adapted. Another exciting thing about this research project is that it's a very powerful example of what could happen when researchers from different disciplines get together and collaborate trying to solve a specific problem. (laughs) Dr. Dave here with a little Halloween story for you. Now, this has not been written up as a peer reviewed journal article yet but it has been published as a press release from the University of Arizona in Tucson, which is my alma mater, and this was just the last few weeks here in October of 2018. The story has to do with a group of archaeologists who were digging at a burial ground in central Italy this last summer. The bodies buried at this cemetery are thought to be from about the mid-400 AD years and they only contained the buried bodies of children and infants. It's called the cemetery of the babies and more than 50 bodies have been found buried here so far, mostly infants. There is some evidence that there was a malaria epidemic at that time because they found the malaria parasite in the body of some of these buried children. They also found some other physical signs of malarial infection in these buried children's bodies Now, it's sort of macabre, but they've also found a lot of strange items buried alongside these infants' bodies. We're talking things like the talons of raven, the bones of toads, the bronze cauldrons filled with ash, and the remains of puppies. This sounds like some sort of Shakespearean play. Or maybe Harry Potter? Now, these strange items, the bones of toads and the talons of ravens, They're commonly associated with witchcraft and magic. The body of one three-year-old girl found in this burial ground was found with stones tied to her hands and feet. That's a practice used by different cultures throughout history to keep the deceased in their graves. So a three-year-old girl dies and the villagers are so afraid of her coming to life, digging her way out of that grave somehow, that they have to tie her down with rocks? That's pretty crazy. Hey, don't forget we're talking about Italy in 400 A.D. here. So this particular thing isn't new. It's already been known that the ancient Romans would often employ practices associated with witchcraft to prevent evil or whatever else might hurt other people from escaping graves. But what they found this summer was the skull and bones of a ten-year-old child. They don't know if it was a girl or a boy. This ten-year-old child had a large rock lodged inside of its mouth. The photo of it is quite eerie. It's a skull lying on the side in the grave, and its teeth are clamped around this large stone. It's about as large as a medium-sized potato, I would say. The rock apparently has teeth marks on it, indicating that it was probably forced into the 10-year-old's mouth after he or she died. This is not the first time that an ancient buried body has been found to have a stone inserted into its mouth. There was the case of an elderly 16th century woman found buried in Venice, Italy, and she had a brick in her mouth. They call her the Vampire of Venice. Now a vampire is a mythological creature that exists by feeding on the blood of the living. Even though Bram Stoker's novel Dracula is the quintessential vampire, it's interesting to note that the idea of the vampire seems almost universal, as it exists in the historical cultures of Europe, Africa, India, the Middle East, and Asia. Even the ancient Aztec culture in what is now Mexico has tales of skeletal-faced spirits who come back to life. And it's not just the vampire of Venice, that woman who had a brick in her mouth, or this new discovery of the ten-year-old with a rock in its mouth that has been discovered by archaeologists. There is an adult male from the 3rd or 4th century in England that was found buried face-down with his tongue removed, and a stone had been put in his mouth instead. And there are some bodies buried in 15th century Poland where sickles were tied around their necks, or rocks were pried around the skull to prevent the mouth from opening. Now apparently archaeologists casually call these kinds of burials vampire burials because they are associated with the belief that the dead could somehow rise again and cause harm to others. Other ancient examples of vampire burials include bodies staked to the ground through the heart or bodies that were dismembered after death but before burial. And although vampire burials are thought to be something that the ancient Romans did quite often, it apparently was also practiced by the ancient Egyptians, Greeks, and Babylonians. It's thought that maybe the reason rocks and bricks were put into the mouths of the dead was to prevent that dead person from coming back to life again and feasting, eating the living. Now this idea that the dead might come back and feast on the living might come from the bloating that often occurs after dying. So even a thin person, or a child by the way, might bloat up enough after death that it makes it seem like they've been eating even when they were dead because they've gained weight. Blood sometimes can be forced out of the body through the mouth due to the pressure from bloating. And this might have made people think that it was feeding on the dead because of that blood coming out of the mouth. And this might be why the villagers would try to block the mouth with rocks or bricks to prevent it from feeding on other people. Archaeologists are thinking that it might be the people in the village who died first at the beginning of an epidemic, whether it was a malaria epidemic or cholera, smallpox, the plague, whatever the epidemic... Maybe it was the people who died first that were more likely to receive this vampire burial. Overall, it sounds like these bodies that they call vampire burials don't show signs of violence. They don't show signs of severe trauma to the body. What killed them? Well, maybe it was the epidemic, the malaria in this case. Researchers think that the cause of death for these supposed vampires might be the disease organisms of the epidemic and that these first deaths are just the beginning of larger epidemics. Can you imagine what it would be like for villagers to experience the beginning of an epidemic? You've got otherwise healthy people who suddenly die. Now we know they died because of some sort of infection, but it must have freaked the villagers out, and they probably jumped to all sorts of conclusions. So you have that first death, and then suddenly other people around you start dying what are you going to do? Well, maybe you're going to blame that first death. Has that body come back to life and now it's spreading its problems to the rest of the village? Well, what are the villagers going to do? They might put rocks and bricks into the mouths of those first deaths to prevent them from eating anymore. So they might call these vampire burials, but I don't believe in vampires. I think this concept of the vampire might be a natural consequence of epidemics It certainly is eerie, though. Happy Halloween! Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP-LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m., that's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMP-LP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.